Well, hello there and welcome back to Molecule to Market. I hope you're having a really good day wherever you are listening to today's episode. As always, I'm Roman Segal, your host. And again, we're going to go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector. And like another recent episode that we had, we are going to take the perspective of a biotech company today in the form of Dr. David Katz, who is founder in CSO at Sparrow Pharmaceuticals. David is a fascinating guest uh, that gives a real life insight into what it's really like on the inside of a biopharma company that's developing novel indication for kind of unmet patient needs. It's really quite insightful to hear his story of how working in a big pharma company before he set up his business is so different to the life of a biopharma company. Also, for many of you who work with such companies or try to target such companies, I explore with David just some of the options and decisions and pathways that he as a founder has to consider alongside his CEO when thinking about the future of the biopharma business and where it will go. There's some really good stories of his background and he's a really interesting character as you'll also find out and where the name Sparrow Pharmaceuticals came from. You'll have to listen out for that, which I did not see coming. So again, that is something to wait on and listen for as well. And I suppose fundamentally what I took from this episode was just the absolute focus on producing a drug that will ultimately help patients which is is a common thread that we get through the drug development sponsor side, but often something we also get from the vendor side as well. But it's just to underline that and and hear how that is kind of fundamental to the mission and vision of the business. For background, prior to founding Sparrow, David was a pharmaceutical R&D leader at Abbott and AbbVie, where he led clinical development and drug discovery teams and was seen as a personalized medicine pioneer. He is dedicated to mentorship of the next generation of life science entrepreneurs and currently as an entrepreneur in residence at Oregon Health and Science University. He held postdoctoral fellowships in immunology at University of Chicago and Michigan and earned a PhD PhD degree in molecular biophysics and biochemistry from Yale University and is also an alumnus of Pomona College, which was in BA in chemistry. He's published over 50 peer-reviewed scientific papers uh, and in his spare time, as you'll find out, he is a glass artist a play developer and he also has something else which was interesting early on in his lifetime that you'll hear as always thank you for tuning in and listening to the podcast i would love your thoughts on these slightly different perspectives on the outsourcing space let us know what you think about these types of interviews which are less on the vendor side and more on the sponsor side I'll be out and about at CPHI and AAPS and various other events in the next couple of months. So if you're going to be there, hit me up on LinkedIn and let me know. Thanks as always to my team, Gemma, Roxana and Tony for helping me pull it together. And if you get a moment, please give us a five-star rating and share the podcast with a colleague. Last but not least, 
If you've not read my book, The Floundering Founder, go on Amazon and buy a copy now. I hope it'll give you some value. In fact, I know it will give you some value. But of course, I am a little bit biased. But for now, please sit back and enjoy today's episode. Hey, David. Welcome to the show. Hey, Raman. It's great to be here. Yeah, it's great to to have you. And I know we've been trying to get this scheduled for a while, so I'm I'm genuinely pleased that we're, we're able to bring this interview to our listeners. David, let's start with your background in, in how you ended up getting into the, the pharma space and ultimately where you ended up today in your role uh, at, you know, at Sparrow Pharma. So getting into pharma was an accident. Um, back in the day, uh, it wasn't a tremendously popular thing to move from academia to uh, the end to industry. Um, but I had just finished a postdoc with Craig Thompson, who's now the uh, president of Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. And so it was in a v- really good lab. But the, the fellow who started before me uh, was the one who picked up the project that wound up being multiple cell and nature papers. And he went on to a, a nice academic career as well. Uh, and so I was looking at a choice of going to a second or third tier university and spending my career writing grants, which I did not want to do, uh, <laughs> taking a second postdoc and hoping that I was the lucky one who got the project that, that you know, would get me the papers to launch a, a top flight uh, in academic career, or I could try industry. And uh, at the time, Craig's lab was at the University of Chicago, and I didn't want to move because I thought, well, you know, I'm probably going to hate industry. And so six months from now, I'll just do the second postdoc. Well, 18 years later, I left, I retired from Abbott um, after having a really good career there. Um, that really also started with an accident, which was that a f- couple of weeks after I started, uh, this was right in the period when genomics was just coming into fashion uh, in the industry. And we had a presentation uh, by the fellow who was um, going to be in charge of our uh, genomics group within drug discovery. Um, and he was touting how genomics was going to absolutely change the world of drug discovery and drug development within a couple of years, and uh, that we'd have nothing but uh, genomics-based drugs uh, within a decade. And of course, that was now 27 years ago. Mm -hmm. Um, But I went up to him afterwards and said, well, what about applications of, of genomics in drug development? And that started a series of conversations, which led to my uh, being the person who started personalized medicine uh, at Abbott. Um, And uh, then I had, you know, a number of years at Abbott where I just learned a lot, had some really interesting things that I worked on. And then one day decided that you know, it was time to retire and go do something else that I probably learned uh, about as much as I would in one company. And a number of us as early drug developers talked about 
Well, there are a lot of really high quality in terms of science and, and clinical potential assets within large pharmaceutical companies that have been deprioritized either because uh, the company got out of a therapeutic area or simply because the company can't support all of the early clinical development programs that, that they have. And wouldn't it be useful for humanity, fun, and maybe even profitable to go out and start our own company, acquire rights to one or more molecules that are really, um, really have strong potential, develop them up through the end of phase two, and then sell them back to big pharma and let big pharma do with it what they're really good at, which is making drugs, selling drugs, and global operations. So it's really difficult for a small company uh, to operate a 3,000 patient trial across 15 countries and achieve appropriate uniformity across all of that. But that's bread and butter for a company like AbbVie. So I decided to do that and did that, and that became Sparrow. I'm going to pause you there because we're going to go on and talk about Sparrow and, and some of the some of the success. I just want to go back to something you said that you were one of the first people at Abbott to be known for, obviously, personalized medicines. Was that even a phrase then? Is was that being touted around as a phrase in the in the sector, or was that something that you were part of that? I suppose initiation where you started talking about personalized medicines, which is obviously used no. quite flippantly across the industry today. But I'm yeah. just curious to know how you that be. How, where was your association with that kind of concept, if you like? Yeah. So I mean, it became personalized medicine became the buzzword. I had nothing to do with starting <laughs> that um, it, it, as a term. You know, we we called the group pharmacogenetics at first, uh, and then people wanted to call it pharmacogenomics because genomics is somehow sexier than genetics. Uh, <laughs> but being a decidedly unsexy person, I. I hewed to pharmacogenetics for quite a while. And then, yeah, personalized medicine really kind of became the buzzword. And so, you know, that's just a, in, in modern times, that's probably the best way to explain it. Okay. Okay, great. And so, you know, best part of a couple of decades at, at Abbott, obviously a, a really solid academic background. And obviously you started talking about, how you started Sparrow in, I believe it was 2013. Talk us through that phase and what was going through your mind, you know, some of the decisions you had to make in, in order not only to, you know, to start a business, but I suppose pick a path in terms of where to focus from a, a therapeutic area. What was you know, take us into your mind or the conversation around the dinner table with your wife at, at that time. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, there were a few years of wandering around in the wilderness um, as I scouted for assets and then ultimately acquired one uh, and then went out and raised uh, venture capital for it. And, you know, it, takes enormously longer to do all of those 
those things than one would hope because uh, at least than a scientist would hope because I'd rather be doing science and clinical development than business development and fundraising. Mm -hmm. Um, And it actually was, I mean, we were a little bit agnostic in terms of the therapeutic area uh, and the mechanism of action, but ultimately um, had some focus um, initially and more and more focus on things that I had gotten to know while I was at Abbott. And actually the uh, mechanism of action of the drug uh, that we're developing now is the same as uh, that of a, of a couple of compounds for which I led the clinical trials uh, at Abbott. Um, mm-hmm. but for a very different indication. Um, you know, at that point, I, I really relied on uh, a couple of colleagues and mentors um, who helped me a great deal. Um, Gail Kirkpatrick, uh, who had been vice president of business development at Abbott and AbbVie, um, really helped me with those areas. And Bruce Galton, who had uh, himself led a few different um, biotech, uh, biopharmaceutical companies over his career, um, really helped me learn, well, how do you run a pharmaceutical company? Because it, it's very different from being uh, an employee of a huge pharmaceutical company. Um, mm-hmm. And um Another kind of happy accident, I had actually been uh, negotiating, uh, trying to negotiate a three-way deal uh, for a compound with the company that had it, the the originator, um, the innovator, um, an investment group, uh, and Sparrow. And that all fell apart. And I thought, okay, well, I've given it my best shot, but this isn't going to work and I'll go figure out something else to do. And a little less than two weeks later, um, I had previously spoken to Estellas and said, Hey, I'm interested in this compound. Would you be willing to license it for me to, uh, to me and to Sparrow? And they said, no, um, this is probably the best drug-like molecule we've ever had in our portfolio. Uh, we're going to uh, do an internal exercise to figure out how to uh, reposition it since our original uh, intended app indication didn't work out. Uh, so thank you for your idea, but no. Uh, and that, and then about a year had passed and they called me back right after this other, uh, potential deal had, had fallen apart. And they said, okay, we, now it's 12 months later. We've done our, we've done our exercise and yours is the best idea, but it's outside of our therapeutic area focus. And so are you still interested? Uh, in this compound. And I said, well, in fact, yes. Um, And then it took another two years to fully negotiate the license uh, and and have global uh, rights for all applications to the the compound. And then it took after that um, 
almost another year and a half to secure Series A uh, financing from Orbamed U.S. Venture Partners and uh, Rivervest Venture Partners. Wow, it's uh, and I'm going to come back to some questions around that particular time of life because I suspect it was a very unknown and uncertain time. I just wanted to rewind back to something you said around, you know, you were a scientist by trade and now you were pitching to VCs trying to raise seed money for for the business. What was that transition like? And given the success that you've had through fundraising over the last decade or so, how did you get better at it? What, you know, if you compare the David today versus nine years ago in terms of fundraising perspective, what skills did you develop and and how how have you managed to do that? Because obviously that's going from a scientist, which obviously you are, but adding that element to your, I suppose, armory is uh, is not easy for people. So just interested to know how you managed to to go on that journey. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there were a couple of things that that really prepared me that were outside of my my scientific training. Um, so one really my my high school english teacher who taught me how to communicate succinctly and effectively um and then something that i i did on a flyer um when i was in graduate school is i started performing stand up comedy um and that's like being on stage um in front of a hostile audience with nothing but your underwear on and not even your nice <laughs> underwear. Um, but it really, it really prepares. Once you've done that, you can do anything before any audience. Um, and so I think that really helped me, you know, sort of take the slings and arrows of um, talking with VCs and, and trying to get money out of them Um So, you know, I I think there's there's more to it than just being a scientist. Your communication skills have to be um, really good and and you can't let your nerves get to you. And I have to ask, are you still doing comedy today, David? Well, I was a graduate student at the time and I remained a graduate student. So, you know, it wasn't. Which, which was in itself not a particularly lucrative uh, career. <laughs> so, I mean, my my comedy career was not going to go anywhere. <laughs> You're listening to Molecule to Market, where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector. The podcast for professionals working in the pharma and biotech contract services space. Okay, and you, you started talking about, I suppose, you know, uh, some of the challenges in those early days that you had in terms of getting funding and acquiring that asset and talk us through what the the early days of you know a, a, an early phase biopharma company is like you know and you know what's what's a, what's life like for you my assumption is you are having to juggle lots of different things and wear lots of different hats like an entrepreneur in in any business kind of endeavor but curious to know what that was like from your experience because you talked about also that you know you don't have necessarily all the expertise and infrastructure 
of, of a big pharma company. So I'm guessing an element is you kind of have to work it out as you go along. But I would just love your perspective on on how that has developed for you over the last uh, you know ten years or so. Yeah, I mean, you you have to work it out, but you also have to rely a lot on on other people on your network. Um, so, you know, obviously from uh, many years at Abbott and AbbVie, I had a pretty extensive network within the the pharmaceutical industry, um, and you know, in a few of the people who are still involved with um, with Sparrow are our colleagues from from those days. So Jeff Drajesk, who's our um, VP of Program Management, um, was someone I had worked with um, for many years uh, at Abbott and AbbVie. Uh, really excellent project manager um, and he and I just have a really good partnership uh, because I come up with crazy ideas and then he implements them or brings me (laughs) down to earth uh, as the case may be. Um, So yeah, you just, you have to be flexible as an entrepreneur. Sometimes you have to step in and do things that are way outside your comfort zone. Um, And it's, it's helpful to, also have a network of other entrepreneurs. So I, um, Sparrow was one of the first companies at the Matter Incubator in Chicago. Um, and, you know, we would, our experiences as entrepreneurs, whether we're running a pharmaceutical company or device or um, a uh, navigator for uh, for enrolling in uh, Obamacare plans, um, many of the experiences are the same, and and so you know you can get a lot of help from and give a lot of help to your fellow entrepreneurs, um, mm-hmm. and so those those sorts of networks are are really valuable um, because no one can do everything by themselves. Yeah, I agree completely. And I think it's interesting, you know, given the depth of your experience, you speak quite openly and with great humility about the mentors and people that you've had around you, which I think is fantastic and a, and a real a characteristic of, of leaders that, you know, there is a a perception often outside of businesses that the entrepreneur, the leader does everything themselves. And that's not the case nine times out of 10, because actually, as you said, they've got good people around them and good mentors and which I think is really interesting to get your, your perspective on that as well. So let's talk about Sparrow Pharmaceuticals and I have to ask you where the name came from. That's my, as a marketing person, I'm genuinely, I'm sure it's something technical, but it might be just something specific to uh, something else personal <laughs> in your life. Um, and tell us, you know, if our listener doesn't know anything about your company, you know, the, what phase you're at and, you know, the the kind of therapeutic areas that you focus on as well, because research, my research tells me that you've got a few products in at phase three now, uh, sorry, at phase two, which is, is super exciting, I imagine, which we can come on to talk to in, in more detail, but just paint a picture of the organization today that you've grown. Yeah, so I mean the the name actually is after Captain Jack Sparrow. Um, 
<laughs> which is someone who whose leadership style I I really appreciate and and try to follow. Um, you know, he's he's always optimistic. He looks like he's working without intent, but in fact he is, and and is often very effective at at getting things done. And he he just has an insouciance uh, about him um, that I, you know, that is kind of infectious. Um, and, you know, when, when I left AbbVie, uh, it was under circumstance that the, the project um, that I, for which I was responsible um, was about to be terminated. Um, and it was, uh, being terminated because um, the direction of the project had really been misled by another uh, executive uh, in the firm. And so when we had the program review meeting at which um, I knew that this was the end of the, the program, uh, I prepared the slide deck uh, for management review, which was basically um, 30 slides of going through the science of of why this other person uh, was wrong. And then the last slide was a picture of Captain Jack Sparrow with his quote, the problem is not the problem. The problem is your attitude about the problem. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's the origin story of, of Sparrow. As I the- love it. I just wanted to pause there because um, it's just a great, a great story of where where the brand name has come from. And that's often the case that there's interesting backgrounds. And just for our listener, I think, you know, there's a lot you can take from that, just taking inspiration from weird and wonderful places and fair play to you for using that as a, you know, in a slide deck, because I suspect that was very memorable to those in the room. So yeah, yeah please continue. Yeah. You know, so Sparrow's grown quite a bit since, uh, since, we raised $50 million series a, um, you know, I think, so the, I mean, the first edition besides myself and Jeff, um, was Robert Jacks, who, um, is our CEO now. Um, and he came to us basically as, as a package with the $50 million. Uh, so when, uh, <laughs> Peter Thompson, uh, who's the lead partner, uh, responsible for the deal at Orbamed said to me, well, we're willing to, to give you $50 million. But, uh, if as a condition of that, you have to take this guy, uh, as, as CEO. Um, and so I said, okay thought to myself, someone's offered me $50 million and they've also offered me this guy who's going to do all the parts of the job that I hate. Let me think (laughs) about that. And so, you know, Robert and I have a really good partnership now, um, you know, because he brings a completely different perspective um, and and one that um, is you know really important for the success of a of a company to ultimately become a commercial endeavor, uh, and we really share you know that goal of of making Sparrow a success. Um, mm-hmm. So it's it's really been pretty good. 
What did that feel like when you know you had that offer on the table for fifty million? You know, from your perspective, given the the journey you'd already been on to get to that point, just that must. My assumption is that must have felt amazing. That some it's it's almost a sense of validation of what you're doing has real chance of of being a success. But I'd just love you to talk about what that was like before you move on. Yeah, so we we actually signed the papers at the end of the year of 2020. Uh, in fact, it was a little little bit after 2 p.m. Pacific time on the 31st. So uh, the lawyers who were on the East Coast were getting a little bit edgy about uh, getting home for New Year's Eve. Um, mm-hmm. I took a day off and then said, okay, well, now the real work begins. <laughs> <laughs> and talk us through what has happened since and in how the company has continued to grow and and if you if you'd like you know you don't have to go too deep into the science but please talk about you know the the types of products that you're that are in the pipeline that you guys are, are developing yeah so um the drug that we're that we develop is an inhibitor of an enzyme called 11 beta hydroxysteroid dehydrogenase type 1 uh, or hsd1 for short and the principle behind uh this drug pertains to a chemical called cortisol um mm-hmm. which is uh traditionally thought of as a stress hormone uh so it's something that is produced in a gland in our bodies um and then circulates throughout the body and and has various effects and in normal levels, uh, cortisol uh, really is pleiotropic. So it helps control how our body handles fats and sugars. Uh, it is involved in memory consolidation. Uh, it's involved in our sleep cycle. So cortisol is uh, really a big part of your internal alarm clock. Um it helps keep your eyes round so that we can see, maintains the intraocular, helps maintain intraocular pressure uh, and a variety of other functions. But um, when you have too much cortisol or a related chemical that works the same way, um, you can have a lot of, uh, a lot of problems. So, um, adequate control of how your body um, handles sugars and fats can turn into diabetes and, and high cholesterol. Um, You can, uh, it can cause glaucoma. It can cause memory loss. uh, It can uh, cause your bones to become fragile and, and fracture. And there are a couple of different ways that you can have, uh, too much of one of these chemicals, which besides cortisol, the whole class are called glucocorticoids. Um, so there are some diseases, um, Cushing syndrome and autonomous mm-hmm. cortisol secretion, in which you have too much cortisol because you have a, tu- a tumor, usually a benign tumor, that secretes the stuff. Uh, and it secretes gobs of the stuff. And so um, you can uh, 
become severely ill because of that. The other uh, way is that we use glucocorticoids uh, as medicines. Uh, so drugs like prednisone, prednisolone, dexamethasone are glucocorticoids, and they're widely used uh, to treat autoimmune diseases, to prevent transplant rejection, uh, and for, for a number of other reasons. Um, and the side effects of glucocorticoid medicines are the same as the symptoms of Cushing syndrome. So things like obesity and sleep problems and memory problems and uh, fragile bones, uh, these are all common uh, to both the endogenous diseases as well as uh, exogenous um, excess uh, glucocorticoid excess. Now, what are what the particular insight about um, HSD one is that these the receptors for cortisol and the glucocorticoid medicines are all inside cells, and so the glucocorticoids have to be inside cells in order to act on their receptors. It turns out that um, if you think about those as drugs, they are very highly protein bound in, mm -hmm. uh, in our circulation. And so they can't access the cells uh, on their own. Uh, but there are also inactive forms of the glucocorticoids. So cortisone, for example, is the inactive form of cortisol. Prednisone is the inactive form of prednisolone. Those inactive forms are much less protein bound, and so they can get into tissues. And in the tissues, they're converted by HSD1 back into the active forms. And that's the process we block. And um, so we lower the amount of cortisol or glucocorticoid medicine that has access to the intracellular receptors. And that's how we're able to uh, hopefully block the adverse effects uh, of them. Mm -hmm. It turns out that the immune system seems to be an exception to that. So one of the functions of glucocorticoids is, is immune suppression. And that's undesired in patients with Cushing's and autonomous cortisol secretion. Uh, because it makes them susceptible, for example, to uh, opportunistic infections or to, you know, new viruses that show up now and again. But in an autoimmune disease, it's desirable not to alter the immune suppressive uh, function of the glucocorticoids because that's why they're administered as, as medicines. Uh, mm -hmm. And so it's the opportunity or the potential, I guess, to separate uh, the immune suppressive power from the other uh, effects of the glucocorticoids that um, makes them particular, makes the combination of a HSD1 inhibitor, such as SPI62, together with um, a glucocorticoid medicine, such as prednisolone, potentially a really, really uh, good drug uh, for mm -hmm. patients with autoimmune diseases. And that's, uh, that's something that we're testing now in 
one of the three phase two clinical trials that we've started. Uh, mm-hmm. The other two uh, phase two trials are in Cushing's syndrome uh, and in autonomous cortisol secretion. I mean, it, it, it's amazing to to hear the the work that's been going on within the business to 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 help meet these unmet needs across the different areas that you you mention and you know fingers crossed goes without saying that the drugs are successful in in the phase that they're in and continue to you know go on towards commercialization you right at the start of the the conversation david you you talked about you know, typically a biopharma company will exit at, at phase two because at that point in time, the infrastructure and expertise and you know marketing expertise and, and everything else that exists within a big pharma company is just a, a better fit for say, you know, a, a biopharma company is relatively small one trying to do everything themselves. So I suppose a two part question. One, are you, are you guys almost at that point? you know, as, as a business and two, do you see a future whereby you could, you could partner with CROs, CDMOs, third party service providers and actually take, take the drug to market yourself? Yeah. Well, I mean, you, you allude to that there's this enormous, you know, almost a separate industry of services for the pharmaceutical industry which are actually many of our listeners in fact, David. So, I mean, that's, that's, I mean, if you can answer from that perspective, because I think our listeners, many of which are in that, I suppose, vendor service provider, pharma services space would love the perspective of someone like yourself and how you then, how you think about that particular juncture in in your journey. I mean, it is of course possible uh, to take that route um, besides a lot of partner companies, you also need a lot of capital uh, to do that. Um, And, you know, we do talk about, well, what are the different possible paths? And, you know, one is to um, sell the company or sell the drug to a big pharma company. Another is to partner with a large pharmaceutical company um, and co-develop it. Another is to become a public company uh, and then develop it with um, CRO, CDMO, et cetera, partners. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and another is to, to look at continued private financing and, and, and work with the you know, CRO, CDMO model. Um, and you know, at Sparrow, we haven't eliminated any of those. Um, mm-hmm. The original concept was to develop through the end of phase two and sell it, but that's not necessarily what will happen. That's fascinating. It's, I appreciate the, it's, it's really just quite insightful to get some of the decisions you guys have to make as an organization, the options that you have on the table when you get to this phase, which, you know, luckily for you are, are numerous, which is, which is fantastic. And just on that, on that thread, then I'm, you know, given, given many of our listeners are from the, the outsourcing space supporting biotech companies like yourself, what, what is your experience being as, you know, a, a startup to phase two in terms of using 
you know, well, you know, firstly researching, selecting, and then ultimately partnering with companies that have helped you on the journey. I noticed that one of your products, for example, is a is a potent uh, product. So I know that can be trickier from an outsourcing perspective, but just be great to get your, I suppose, perspective on how that experience has been of using outsourced vendors. Yeah, and it really is new for me because we didn't do a ton of outsourcing uh, at Abbott and AbbVie uh, mm-hmm. at the time and in the groups that I was in. I mean, I remember doing clinical trials in which you know the the, ven- the vendor was the central lab. Mm-hmm. And that was about the only thing that wasn't managed internally at Abbott. So it's really different. It's a it's a different style of working. Um, you know, I, I think technology has helped that enormously. And ironically, the, the pandemic has helped that enormously because in Sparrow now, Sparrow is a completely virtual company. We have people who are spread out all over the U.S. and and one man in U.K. So at Abbott, there was a culture where of being co-located in the same Mm -hmm. place. And so although Abbott was dispersed across the globe, it really did make a difference whether you were at the home campus or we're out at an affiliate. And now everything is, is, is um, it's flat. It doesn't matter other than, you know, some circadian disturbances. Um, it doesn't matter where in the world someone is, if they're the best person or best group of people to do the job, you can work with them. Mm-hmm. And technology has enabled that and, COVID has forced us to get used to it. Um, you know, I, I didn't feel like I had any problem adapting to that. I'm, I felt very comfortable with it, but, mm-hmm. um, you know, not everyone is. And, and how's your experience been of, I suppose, outside of the employees within the organization where you have had to partner with third party organizations for different aspects of your drug trials, uh, you know, presumably manufacturing and running trials and depending on what you've decided to keep in house and what you've decided to use external parties to help you. What, what's your experience been like of, of companies that have supported you on that journey? Has it been a mixed bag? Has it been what you expected? Has it been, I'm just interested given that wasn't what you were used to at, at, at Abbott. You know, the, the individual experiences have been a mixed bag, you know, we, we have had some a couple of situations where we've had to change partners, but we've also had some, you know, really good partnerships form. And I think it, it comes back to the people and, you know, are the people who are your, your project leads really effective? Are they bought into your vision um, so that you're really working as a team Again, it, it, I mean, it doesn't matter where you are. It also doesn't matter who's signing your paycheck if you have the same goals. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's a great it's a great point. That and it's 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 just useful to get your 
perspective and it's quite similar to often what we hear with you know guests like yourself that it is a bit of a a mixed bag and i suspect that's going to get even more complicated for you guys as you you know run these kind of bigger trials uh, as well you mentioned capital before and and i know we're, we're we're nearly out on time so i'll not take up too much more of your of your time but i'm really enjoying the the conversation you mentioned obviously if 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 you guys were to take the decision to privately you know continue to raise funds and and try and take your you know your your various products to market that you would require obviously that continued investment so talk to me about the current capital markets and, and the pressure that potentially causes you guys if, say, you do have to go back into the market to raise another $100, $200 million. What, what's your thoughts on that, given, given the kind of the drop that we've seen in, in 2022? Right. So, I mean, Sparrow is in a good situation because we have runway into 2024 and that's sufficient to uh, get readouts from all three of our our phase two clinical trials so we just have to sit back and hope that the markets turn about but even you know with that if we get positive data we'll have a really strong story yeah uh, to pitch yeah, which ultimately is what will determine the success and failure of, of the businesses. If you get, you know, fingers crossed, hopefully you get good data readouts from your phase two trials, then, you know, you would expect that to be <laughs> a line of suitors ready to support you for the, for the next phase. Yeah. And the market markets are strange things, but there, you know, there's a ton of money that's been poured into biopharmaceutical venture capital over the past few years and it's going to have to be invested that's such a good point that that you know that that money is waiting there to be invested and in my mind it's a classic you know the the, the fittest are gonna you know get themselves ahead of the rest of the crowd and and for you that kind of fight for survival will become on on the quality of the data and if you guys have are being shown to having a, a very very good product with the data to back it then the investment i suspect will be there to to continue to support your journey one would hope so well i certainly do anyway i i certainly hope so my final question is is a bit of an odd one but my background research on you i am pretty sure that i learned that you were also an artist have i made that up or is that true that is true I've done a number of artistic things. I'm a glass artist, so I've done both glass blowing and glass sculpting. And currently I'm trying to write a play. Incredible. Are you not busy enough? No, evidently not. (laughs) Comedy, art, writing, plays. You are, and obviously the scientific background and clearly an entrepreneurial background. You, uh, you're quite the guest, I have to say, David. Um, and I've really enjoyed our conversation today. And thank you for sharing your background and your journey and also just the, the ups and downs of your, I suppose, period of being the founder and CEO of the CSO at, uh, 
at Sparrow. And it goes without saying, given the focus of the business and what you're trying to do for patients in, in different areas, um, you know, we, we wish you all the greatest success in the world for your data readouts for phase two, but also well beyond that as well. And, you know, we love getting guests like yourself on because it just brings a lot of what a lot of our listeners do, you know, to, in their day jobs, what they do for life. It just brings it to reality a little bit more to get the, the, I suppose, the insight and mindset of a, of a founder of a biopharma business like yourself. So I really appreciate you making the time and to be, uh, for being a guest on, on Molecule to Market. Thanks. I, uh, I enjoyed the conversation. I think you're a really good interviewer. Um, and would like to leave the, your listeners you know, with the thought that that chromatogram that you're generating or that quality document that you're reviewing, all of that's important. And all of it contributes ultimately to delivering better medicines for patients. So keep at the grindstone. Well, very here, here, very well, very well said. Thank you, David. Appreciate your time. Thank you for being a guest. All right. Cheers. Hi again. Thanks so much for tuning in to Molecule to Market. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. You can find more shows on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you like to listen. Get in touch with us on our website, moleculetomarketpod.com, and follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter, and we will see you again next week. You're listening to Molecule to Market where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector. The podcast for professionals working in the pharma and biotech contract services space. Molecule to Market is sponsored and funded by Remarketing, an international content, digital and design agency that helps companies get noticed, raise profile and generate leads in life sciences.